house upon the sand. Obviously, it's uh, the title is supposed to be humorous, but um, strangely enough, it does relate rather well to uh, a theme of today's episode. Uh, that being the theme of um, solidity, of meaning and and belonging, and purpose. In fact, the reason that I created this podcast is. Because, well, there's a, um, there's a problem in our society today. It's not a new problem. In fact, it's a, it's a very, very old problem. That problem is the perceived lack of, of meaning that many people seem to face or, or sense in their, in their personal lives. And while, as I said, this is a very old problem... I do believe that it's been uh, exacerbated in recent times. I believe this is a, a, a progressive uh, a progressive process that just compounds itself as we go on. And the, re- the reasons for this are not at all complicated. They are rather obvious, in fact. However, the, the causes... The underlying causes are the are what gives me cause for concern. So today I wanted to talk about traditionalism. That is uh, epistemological traditionalism. And as with most um, most aspects of, of human comprehension, I think it um, we understand it best when it's arranged in a duality. So I'll explain it for you in, uh, in that sense. So in his book, Revolt Against the Modern World, which has become sort of a unofficial catchphrase for the sort of uh, neo, neo-conservative uh, movements of our day, I suppose you could say. But it started off as a book. It's written by a man named Julius Evola. He was an, a Sicilian philosopher, actually, and he was one of the leading lights of the traditionalist school. Another big name in the school was René Guénon, and there were, there were plenty of others. But in his book, in, uh, in Revolt Against the Modern World, Julius Evola opposes what he calls the world of tradition to the world of material. So we have these two worlds that are in opposition to each other. And these are worlds in the sense that they exist in the perceptions of those who inhabit them. So a a person, a man who inhabits the world of the material is someone who is preoccupied with the, the world of um, sensations and phenomena as it, as it presents itself to him. This is someone who believes that uh, the world as it appears to us 
contains both the ca both causes and results, the reasons and the meaning behind life. He believes that this is this is all there is, and therefore this should occupy the highest priority in his mind. Conversely, there is also the world of tradition, as Evola puts it. And to the man who inhabits this world of tradition, as Evola says, he recognizes that everything that we see in this, um, in what we call reality, this world of sensations and phenomena, is nothing but a reflection, an instantiation of a deeper reality, of a higher plane, we can say. And what we see, what we perceive as our reality uh, is nothing but a tiny fraction of what actually exists throughout the cosmos. It's almost as if this is being um, filtered through the, the sieve of our uh, of our consciousness, of our brain, of what we can of what we have the potential to perceive. And traditionalism is closely linked to what's called the perennial philosophy or perennialism. And this is a this is the notion that um, all world cultures, all world traditions, all world religions derive and descend from one metaphysical truth. You could call it God, you could call it the one, to use a, a platonic term. You could refer to it as the higher. But all of these are just um, human words that we've created to describe something that exists independent of human perception. And to a person who exists in the world of tradition, he understands that the phenomena that we perceive flow and derive directly from this higher truth. And that we ourselves are, are results of, the, of this higher economy of energy and, and of sort of mystical flow of the universe that exists beyond our, our comprehension and beyond our perception. I think a, a good way to explain this, I found this metaphor in a book called Revolt, oh no, sorry, um, this book is called A Tragic Sense of Life by Miguel de Unamuno. Uh, he uses the metaphor of a parasite. Imagine an eyeless, earless, noseless parasite that exists in, in the belly of, of a person. So we can call it the, the tapeworm. Now this tapeworm, he can't see, he can't hear, he can't taste. So f to him, for all intents and purposes, the visual audio world on which we so, so closely depend uh, doesn't exist. 
and yet he benefits directly and he lives through these worlds because the, the creature on which he lives, on which he, which he parasitizes, um, is nourishing him because it lives in this, in this world of sights and sounds and therefore it can hunt and, and gather prey. And um, a portion of that goes to, to nourishing the tapeworm. And in, in this metaphor, the man of material, the man who exists in the world of material, is represented by the tapeworm. He doesn't know that the, the, um, the higher plane exists, or he may choose to deny it. But that does not change the fact that he's being nourished and sustained by it within the context of the metaphor. So what happens, for example, if a, to pursue the metaphor, if the tapeworm is flushed from the body of its host? Well, it dies. A parasite without a host dies. And this is what happens to the the man who denies his transcendence. He succumbs to nihilism and meaninglessness. And Julius Evola was, was acutely aware of this. He wrote an entire book detailing this psychological phenomenon. It's called Riding the Tiger. And in it, he, he describes how the general status quo of modernity, and he wrote this um, a long time ago. He lived uh, around the World War II period and died shortly afterwards. Um, he wrote this book when these things were, were only beginning to happen, and we live in a, in a much advanced stage, much more advanced stage of these, uh, of these uh, conditions. There are many, many um, philosophical systems that have attempted to derive objectivity and to derive meaning by secular means, and by secular, I mean by secular, I mean um, without reference to some sort of infinite point, without reference to the infinite. And this, this of course, is absurd. And there's a reason. There's a reason why there is yet to, there has yet to be a philosophical consensus on what constitutes objectivity. Because to attempt to derive the objective from the subjective is like trying to create gold from lead. And this sort of metaphysical alchemy that modern thinkers are constantly engaged in is what, what, it's what's creating this angst. Among the among the population, it's a it's an angst that is increasingly common, and it's only going to get more common as time goes on. 
because like it or not we we need higher meaning we need a reason that is independent of ourselves because something that is the product of human reasoning human thought think about it it may be very um convenient and it, it may gel very well with some uh, a given person's psychological uh, makeup it may be a a system that works for them i've i've found my i found my calling i found my meaning i create my own meaning well that's all well and good but as Miguel de Unamuno again in his in his book The Tragic Sense of Life describes man lo man longs to be eternal this is something that um philosophers and psychologists have been aware of for centuries man man has an innate desire for self-perpetuation. And it, in in fact all living things have this drive, this urge, this impulse to perpetuate themselves. Right down to viruses. This is a a minuscule particle not not even really alive it's it's a particle of of protein and a handful of genetic material and yet they reproduce from an evolutionary standpoint if we go back to the to the most basic primordial slime why was the, why are things driven to reproduce themselves? There's no logical reason for it. I mean, self self perpetuation, evolution, these are the ends. I'm wondering about the the, the wherefore, the why. And this desire for self-perpetuation in humans extends past the, the barrier erected by, by death. We, we long to be eternal. We have this desire to continue. This is why people seek fame. This is why intellectuals seek notoriety. This is why politicians seek glory. This is why people desire to be remembered. I think that um, the Disney movie Coco, strangely enough, and I don't know if this is deliberate or not, but it, it seems to illustrate this, this principle very, very well. In the movie, 
you die and you go to the the the, the afterlife, the spirit world, if you will, and but you're only permitted to stay there as long as there are people who remember you. After everyone who remember you dies, there's no longer anyone to sustain your existence, in a sense, and you you pass into what's called the second death. And this is is a strange sort of manifestation of the mentality that that many people have today. If they can't live forever in a literal sense, they wish for their the idea of themselves. The, the, their memory, their name to live forever. The famous anthropologist Ernest Becker famously theorized that the, we, ha- we really have two existences, the external and the, the internal. He also said that this is a, a division created by mankind's own self-reflex, self-reflection. So in a sense, it's an illusion, but to us, it is, it is real. And while we more or less have a grasp of our internal existence, we have very little control over our outward existence, how we're, how we're perceived, the, the self, the, the I that exists uniquely in the, in the perceptions and in the collective mindset of, of those who perceive us. We, we are trapped within ourselves, strangely enough, because language is a, is a very flawed medium. It's, it's something that can only get us so far. If something, for example, it, an emotion, can't be communicated through the medium of language, then it's condemned to stay eternally locked within ourselves, locked within our own, um, our own being. And therefore, the, there's quite a bit of um, suffering that's, that's produced because of this. But in any case, returning to the original point, and if we can't go on existing internally, then we can at least go on existing in the external sense. In Dante's Inferno, he says that the only consolation the souls in hell have, the only salve for the eternal fire is when people talk about them in, in the world of the living, when their fame is spoken of. It's the only, the only respite they have. And this is the, this is the only refuge of, of, the, of the man who exists in the material world. This is his only hope for a, a kind of, any kind of afterlife is the, the hope that his name will endure, if not his essence. Miguel de Unamuno says that as a child, even the most stirring images of hell didn't really scare him because to him, 
being reduced to nothingness was infinitely scarier than the than the idea of eternal torment even because even in hell he would exist he cites the the work of of philosopher benedict spinoza um who posited that substance can be defined as as the aggregate of all the characteristics that exist that that make a thing itself so everything that it is per se in itself um, can be defined as its substance uh, furthermore its essence he defines as the endeavor the the quest the desire to continue to to perpetuate its own substance and so unamuno takes this to its logical conclusion and says that essence persists after um, or, or the this is I have to be very precise with my wording here because in this sense essence could be conceived of as a psychological phenomenon and in, indeed Unamuno almost treats it like one he says that our essence, we, we wish for our essence to continue after, after death. The problem is, secularly, we have no way of reasoning our way to proof of the afterlife. Many have tried, and it's simply doesn't work. See, reason is, is like a snake that's eternally eating its own tail. You can reason your way to just about any conclusion. And if you submit a, for example, a, a formula claiming to derive the immortality of the soul the rationally, it will be it would be just as easy for a skilled philosopher to tear it down to wreck it using the same method using you know logic and and reason and this is this has happened many many times this is this makes up a substantial portion of the history of philosophy is this struggle between uh, I suppose you could say traditional traditionalism and materialism theism and atheism you could frame you could frame it many ways Traditionalism offers an alternative uh, explanation. If there is an eternal with a capital E, if there is some sort of uh, vital 
mystical energy that flows through us. Then perhaps that continues after death. And I know the the easy thing to say is, well, where's the evidence for this um, this so-called vital force? And for traditionalists, although it is is something inherently incomprehensible, um, there are sort of echoes and and shadows of it that sort of leak through our our cultures and our the world the civilizations and and um, societies of the world and these are known as as archetypes now, an archetype is something that's a bit tricky it's easy to get it confused with the the platonic idea of of things in themselves and although it it might be said to be similar it's not exactly the same an archetype is a template, in a sense. People are born with inherent characteristics. We're born with a, a sex, a race, a um, economic background. Um, we've since done away with this, but if we were living in a, a more traditional society, we would have a caste. I, some people believe that the caste, castes existed exclusively in India, but this actually isn't true. A caste, meaning a, a rigid social um, creed, a rigid social class, and the, the hierarchy um, formed thereby is actually a, a fairly ubiquitous phenomenon um, because hi hierarchy is more or less an innate feature of humanity and it results from difference this is, the only way to deny this is to believe in an absolute tabula rasa, an absolute blank slate theory. The, the idea that human, human beings are shaped and defined exclusively by their experiences and their circumstances. But even then, um, in a practical sense, you must admit that and a completely identical experience and a completely therefore a completely identical poten potentiality is is impossible so it, given in the thought experiment where we place two people in a room there will necessarily be differences between them and these differences will necessarily um, beget a, a hierarchy between the two people. Hierarchy is an inherently political term in the sense that I'm using it, um, based off of power and, and value. Um, and it, it is, of course, dependent upon the, 
the um, the reference point which you're using. If I say a hierarchy of um, of skill or a hierarchy of masculinity of dominance, well then that's that's the that's the definition it takes on. Um, but regardless, uh, this. This exists. If we extrapolate the the thought experiment with the two people and we add 200, 2,000, 2 million people into the room, well, not only will they form individual hierarchies, well, they will likely form groups. And these groups will um, arrange themselves into layers. And the most, in a, in a situation, in a social situation that is premised and predicated upon power, the, the people most suited to, that are best equipped to fulfill that premise will naturally rise to the top of the pyramid. And this is why, from a purely sociological sense, we have hierarchy. However, a traditionalist would question why does difference exist from a, a, a transcendental point of view? Because remember, everything is um, resultant. Every, everything that we can perceive is, is nothing but a result and a manifestation of a higher power to a traditionalist. And they would wonder... Well, there's the, there are these differences, but why, from where do they derive? And this comes back to the concept of archetypes. A, a large part of the traditionalist body of work is, is dedicated to the study of archetypes and the study of the sort of cosmic templates. And to a traditionalist, the traditional aristocracy, the, the Brahmin of, of India, the, um, the traditional nobility of Japan, of China, of um, the Aztec and Inca empires, these are simply the... Um, the result of the of the spiritual vitality of the of the individuals who make up the cast. So to a traditionalist, if you have if you're in possession of um, hereditary power, then you inherently deserve it because you are endowed with a spiritual metaphysical vitality that those of lower caste simply do not possess. And in this sense, hierarchy is predicated on something more than power, more than secular power. Now, I know the 
the obvious question is, well, how is it that they they lost? How is it that the traditional societies lost to the masses? And the answer to that is actually quite simple. Uh, a betrayal of the principle does not equate to the non-validity of the principle itself. So if a if a king is weak, that doesn't mean that the kingship is weak. There's a difference between the place and the thing that occupies it. So ideally, a king would always be spiritually vital, proportional to his, uh, his, his, um, his station. However, this very, this very conversation is, is a rather materialist one because we're looking at it from the lens of power and we are operating off of the assumption that kings and, and traditional rulers are inherently do not in, are not inherently suited for their positions and this i think is partly due to the fact that we have only ever lived in a time where the foundations of tradition have already been eroded at the time of the of the great revolutions in europe um and so on the tradition was already dead it's been dead for a long long time so you and i have never known a truly vital ruler in any sense other than the the vague historical one. This will all seem rather far-fetched to someone unacquainted with this this mode of thinking, but I would go back to the metaphor of the of the tapeworm just because the tapeworm does not perceive the world of sight and sound does is not necessarily proof that it doesn't exist so just because a person cannot perceive the the higher plane and of course there are varying degrees to which it can be perceived. I don't think anyone would say that one could arrive at a perfect knowledge of the sublime, but there, just because someone exists at a lower level of awareness doesn't is not proof that their degree of perception is, is valid.
in the Vedic society in India, the, the ancient caste system, a person of the lowest caste was reputedly happy with his station in life because he had a set of concrete principles and archetypal values which he could fulfill and he felt comfortable and at ease in this in this situation um, within the society conversely there existed those who rejected their their caste and these these people were regarded as as lower than even the lowest member of the lowest caste because they had rejected a part of themselves and this brings me to another point in his in his uh, book the fourth political theory uh, philosopher Alexander Dugin relates a theory as to why we reject why people leave their castes and this is a theory that I've I've heard sort of jokingly referred to as dialectical non-materialism which I actually think is a term that describes it quite well because it is a theory of history uh, much like Hegel's dialectical materialism but the the focus the subject of it is is rather different so it goes something like this the subject of history to Dugin is the immaterial is the the soul we'll say the soul meaning the 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 sum of everything that makes a person themselves including um, their their spiritual attributes and the, as well as their biological psychological intellectual capacities which I I would contend are all rather um, intertwined and, and inseparable But Dugin um, relates through a rather thorough analysis of Western philosophy how people began rejecting parts of themselves. And it all really began with the, the formation of the dogmas of, of freedom and of equality, uh, or more, more precisely, of, of equity. And these definitions are a Western creation. And they, they've, they've, bec they've come to form a, a dogma of, of modernity. So when you are operating based off of the, well, A, the premise that equality and liberty in the Western sense can exist, and B, that it is an objective good, well, then you obviously begin to question everything that could hinder or Im otherwise impede 
um, the achievement of these values. So this manifested itself in um, the, the absolute doubt of, of Descartes. So, so doubt and question everything, especially what you deem to be unjust. Um, and of course, this, this is coupled more or less with a, a disbelief in God or a lack of belief in God, if we want to get pedantic about it. So when you take the transcendent aspects out of both individual and collective existence, you're left with pure politics. So any sort of um, impediment to the free exercise of um, the will it becomes unjust. For example, a very a very good um, contemporary example is that of gender. Du for Dugin in the West, everything has become optional. It started off with um, caste optional, then it became religion optional, and it became gender optional. And according to him, soon it will become human optional. He's someone who's very concerned with the advent of post-humanism and the, the death of the, the concept of a human being, which he sees as the ultimate conclusion of this dialectical non-materialism. But you see, you see the dilemma. This is a consequence of the unbridled exertion of the, of the human will, in which every impediment, every hindrance to its free reign is regarded as unjust, even if that um, impediment derives from something integral to the subject itself. For example, the physical restrictions of biological sex. These could be regarded and are regarded to very many people um, contemporarily as, um, and this is, this is a term that I am going to apply, but I believe it figures rather accurately. The biological sex is regarded commonly as oppressive. This is, of course, tantamount to well, regarding your your uh, your hand as oppressive, or regarding your your face as oppressive. I I can't look like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Therefore, I'm being oppressed by my ugly face. Luckily, we've progressed to the point where we can use the technology of our own creation to remedy some of these 
perceived uh, perceived oppressions. And as we progress down the technological rabbit hole, this this bizarre, morbid capacity will only increase in its in its um, intensity and profundity. So when we take the transcend the transcendental aspects of human existence out of it, as I said, we're left with pure politics. And in this in the sphere of pure politics, there's no room for religion. There's barely even room for philosophy. And you'll find that the people who exist in this space, in this uh, space of modernity, they are, well, they're wearing a, a masquerade. They're, they're, they're playing a, at a masquerade because they, they pretext to be happy and fulfilled. They think that the the indulgence of the will will render them ultimately happy. But they conflate pleasure with happiness. And I would go I wouldn't even say that happiness is an objective end. I would instead replace it with the term uh, fulfillment. I think that would serve our purposes better. They conflate pleasure with fulfillment. Just recently, I was watching um, a popular sitcom, you may know it, called Parks and Recreation. I, I do enjoy the occasional vapid uh, sitcom as well, as much as the next guy. Uh, but there's a character called Jen Barkley in this in this uh, show, and she is a um, a political jockey, a Washington political jockey. And at one point, she's helping the main character, um, Leslie Nope. She's she's giving her political advice or something. Um, and I I can't remember exactly how this happens, but she the character Jen Barkley starts talking about how. <laughs> um, all Leslie's life is terrible because she has children and how she's going to she says I'm going to go do whatever I want because I don't have kids oh my gosh I love my life or something to that effect um, and that is just the, <laughs> the most ludicrous um, yet uh, illustrative a manifestation of the Hollywood mentality I've ever seen. Probably the most, one of the most flagrant as well. Uh, how? Well, of course I know how, but it's it's just consider for a moment that we have a character who is just admittedly seeking to replace the, well, to to fill the void of you know the, to fill the void inherent in in life with 
with things and with self-indulgence. Whereas the, the, uh, the opposing character, Leslie Nope, who is by no means a, a, a champion of traditionalism, don't get me wrong, but she at least has the common sense to realize that true fulfillment is found in the, in the family, Death for one thing. That's probably the, the most basic tenet of, of even the most milk toast brands of conservatism is you know the importance of the family but it's astonishingly it's something that has become that has come under attack as well i suppose you could say that to some extent um the desire for self-perpetuation extends even to the family you know in in having children a part of you lives on you, through them um, as well as your memory, they you know they will remember you. They will honor you as a, as an ancestor. But what is what is the recommendation of modernity? Well, that you seek pleasure and that you seek to indulge your your will, your desire. It's nonsense. It's 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 a nonsensical. Um, it's a nonsensical assertion, and, and only people who are just completely blinkered and, and you know, rather, rather blind to, to the long term, only this kind of person could, could possibly believe that. But, of, the, of course, this will be perceived as, as me dictating values. To, to someone, which of course is is taboo in in our modern society. If you want to, you know, if you want to live a completely secularized uh, hedonistic lifestyle, well, then that's your prerogative. Don't let anyone tell you different, because you are a completely free atomized individual but this is I mean sooner or later they'll find that there are certain attributes that are inherent to humanity and for the the concept of humanity to mean anything well then we have to maintain the parts that constitute the whole a great movie that ex that explores this concept very well is, um, is are the Blade Runner movies, the first one, but especially the the second one, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Um, these these are movies about what it means to be human. Is there something that is definitively human? And the conclusion that they reach is rather um, uncompelling, I would say. The, the exploration is, is riveting to watch, but the, the conclusions I, I find um, disappointing. The conclusion is that um, 
Well, giving giving yourself to a greater cause is is the definitively human. So in a sense, creating your own meaning that see, and seeking its vindication through um a, you know a, a, an artificially created collective cause which is for one thing it borders on circular reasoning and for another it's it's just it's unconvincing humanity must mean something more than just a collection of values in that case theoretically a cat who could be proven to share these values would be human but the the strategy of the of the um, sophist is to hyper compartmentalize it's the it's the classic um, story of Theseus's boat if you if you replace one board at a time in a boat at what point does it become a new boat if at the end of the day you've completely replaced the boat with new materials with new components is it a new boat or is there something inherent that remains so applied to the, the human argument, um, at what point does something become human or become inhuman if we start adding or removing attributes? Is there, is there really nothing higher that we can hope for is the question that, that I, I pose. Is there really no objective definition of, of what it means to be human that I can hope for? Is there nothing that I can cling to? Is, is this human existence nothing but a, a tiny spark between two infinite stretches of blackness. That's that's a that's a depressing thought. And of course, I I don't mean to um, to stray into the realm of pragmatism because that is almost the the argument that you end up making by waging this this criticism. Um, is that, you know, these, these things are invalid because they make me depressed. That's not the, that's not the argument that I'm making. That is, it is merely an um, unfortunate consequence. The reason that these things are invalid is because they defeat themselves. Because, think about it. A, a mentality that denies the concept of objective meaning, um, by which I refer to a, a kind of meaning that exists independent of 
um, you know, of of the individual. A a philosophical system that denies this, and to some degree or other, this is the pervading mentality of modernity. How can it make prescriptions? If it, you know, if this so-called philosophical system cannot confirm the reality or the existence even of its substance, if all it is is just the, you know, be it empirical, be it rationalistic conclusions of its author, which is, you know, any, any philosophy that does not at least claim to have a reference to the infinite, if really all, that, all it boils down to is a collection of informed recommendations. So you can't prove that it's true. Neither can you prove that it's false under these premises, but you can't prove that it's true. So it is something that depends upon the, the minds of those who accept it. But given two philosophical systems like this, how can we form a, you know, how can we form a hierarchy between the two? We, the, the answer is we can't because there is, there is no objective independent criterion to do so with. That's just the sad truth. This is why the, you know, the, the liberal democracies of, of our day and age, um, although extremely efficient at producing wealth and material well-being, which I think is, is not entirely unlinked to the, the fact that they are founded and premised upon, you know, philosophies that to some extent or another take these things as a objective good, although they are not proven to be so. Um, liberal democracies are incredibly good at creating the, you know, at, um, at, at uh, materializing their uh, theoretical values of, of freedom, of equality, and at producing large amounts of material wealth. No one's denying that. What I question is why these things should be taken as objectively good. When, at the end of the day, the, the polities of modernity are all, un are all universally predicated upon one singular principle, that of pure politics. There's nothing transcendent about the United States of America. You know, maybe there was at some point, I'm sure someone could, could make an argument about that. But it is a, a, a nation form, founded on pragmatism 
at least in in its current uh, in its current existence. I would say the same thing about um, the nations of Europe as they currently exist. The China, Russia to a lesser extent, but still yes. I'm sure there are communities in the world that, that retain sort of a sense of the divine, but I, I suppose I would have to do some research um, into that because I, I'm primarily aware of the historical examples. However, regardless, what does that mean for us as, as members of the church? This is my final point. Well, we as members of the church are incredibly, incredibly spoiled. We are incredibly gifted because we have an objective truth. We have a truth that is independent of the, you know, the, the inhabitants, the perceivers of this truth. Of course, I mean the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his church, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have an anchor. We have a firm foundation. And we are so, so gifted to have not only this foundation, but also the, the means at by which we can arrive at, this, at the knowledge of its truthfulness. As, you know, as Kierkegaard famously declared, true nobility lies in confronting meaninglessness and, you know, relinquishing yourself unconditionally to a religion. But we don't have to do that because we are, we are not tapeworms. We don't exist um, independent, we don't exist alienated from the, the religious aspects of life. Even if there were n was no living creature willing to confess the divinity of Jesus Christ, that would, that would not change the fact that he is divine. Whereas if there existed not a single person willing to confess the, uh, the virtue of equality on the earth, well, it would cease to be a virtue. And we would move on to some, some other concept. Uh, that is something that is something beautiful to me. And as regarding um, as regarding the perennial philosophy, there there exists a strain of thought that uh, believes that while while truth does exist, it must be revealed. Your human beings, according to this this um, train of thought, will never 
um, possess the the ability to arrive at this at this truth one way or another. Therefore, it, it must be revealed. And I do, I find this very compelling. I subscribe to this mode of thought. I I am extremely skeptical of the human ability to perceive objectivity or, or to produce meaning. And luckily, in the church, as I said, we are we are spoiled because the truth has been revealed to us. The gospel is this truth. The gospel is the truth that the, the perennial philosophy points to. From the foundation of the world, it has been true. And the the trickles and, and the traces of truth that are scattered throughout the, the cultures of antiquity are derived from this revealed truth. Um, I don't think this is even a, a controversial stance to, to take in the church. I think this is very this is very milk toast. I think this is um, this is in perfectly in line with the doctrine of the church. And whether or not you regard these um, these societies that um, pretended, to have divinity as whether you regard them as perversions of the truth or misunderstandings or simply um, unauthorized outgrowths I, I think is is immaterial because the the objective truth is out there um, and it justifies itself and it even justifies the search for itself. Because something that is objective is, is true absolutely in itself and independent of any other, um, any other factors. So, and I would also say that something objective is self-justifying and self-sufficient. I in, in over the course of of this of this podcast I will I will uh, elaborate on this on this further and what place the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ um what place it ought to occupy in the in the in the context of our individual philosophical outlooks and political persuasions. But of course, I think this is a very tender, sensitive topic because you, you ought, we, we mustn't teach false doctrine. <laughs> and when discussing, and when discussing the church and when discussing um, interpretations regarding various aspects of the church it is it is an easy pitfall pitfall to trip into um, because we often mistake in we often mistake interpretation for doctrine and we often uh, overestimate our our own 
um, prerogatives, I will say. A distinction needs to be made between uh, the, the general body of philosophy and the intellectual dialectic therein, and on, on one hand, on the other, and on the other hand, um, discussions of theology and speculation about theology. And lastly, discussion of the church and of doctrine. Because quite frankly, discussion of doctrine is a conversation that shouldn't really happen. What I mean by this is when we, di when we discuss doctrine, it, it must take place under very strict parameters. Um, I think it's, as I said, it's, it's very dangerous that we overestimate our, our leeway. Doctrine is uh, infallible and Im immutable. Um, criticizing a doctrine of the church or even questioning it could be construed as um, a blasphemous. And that, that's, a, that's a strong word, I know, but if you think about what that boils down to, um, you're questioning a, doctr a doctrine of the church means that you're questioning the authority of him who uh, prescribed it, meaning either the, the prophet or... Um, well, cause, because the prophet is, is more or less nothing but an intermediary between um, God and uh, humanity. So really, the, you're questioning the will of God. Um, I could go on bloviating about this for, for some time, but I think this is getting rather repetitive at this point. So I will sign off, but I have... I very much enjoyed doing this this podcast. I hope that out there there's someone who has enjoyed it as well. Um, I am more than happy to receive um, suggestions, comments, questions, and uh, guidance for as to how I should continue because really I have no idea how to do this. Uh, this has just been me talking into a microphone. So I am curious to know whether there is a market for this kind of uh, podcast, for this a, a niche in which I can exist um, within the, the uh, member community. So if if there is anyone out there who was uh, moved or otherwise um, touched by um, this content, please don't hesitate to tell me. Um, even if it was a, a negative sort of reaction, please tell me so that I can I can improve and that I can make the next episode uh, perhaps better than this one. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, I'm Jackson Hawkins, and I am signing off.